Now, as usual, we're going to start with a proverb of the day, uh, just two verses. Proverbs 3, 7, and 8. Proverbs 3, 7, and 8, two verses. It says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Do not be wise in your own eyes. <laughs> That's very good, and it's very simple, but we very often are wise in our own eyes. We think we've got it together. We think we know how to handle a situation. Uh, oftentimes, if we're, if we're built up with pride, we don't want to hear a suggestion from somebody else. We're wise in our own eyes. The Bible says not to be that way. It says, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Here's your answer. This is the way to not be wise in your own eyes. We know that fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And depart from evil. Sounds very simple, doesn't it? But it's so cool how God's precepts are simple. Uh, as, as, as intelligent as we become, as, as learned as we, as we become over the years, he has very simple precepts for us to lead a good life, a clean life, and uh, a productive life, right? And, and a life, hopefully, without too much sorrow and pain. And, you know, the Bible tells us that the world is a sinful place. People are sinful. There's going to be natural disasters, natural problems. There's going to be bad things that happen to good people. However, why should we make the problem worse by making sinful mistakes that come back and hurt us? Okay, so that's a good thing to eliminate that part out of our life. It's one thing if you're a victim of circumstances, but it's another thing if you've caused those problems in your own life. And often we can take a look at our lives and look back retrospectively and say, you know what, some of these problems I caused. It wasn't anybody else, it was me. So this is a good scripture. And the last part is, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. There's a succession. Don't do this. Do this. And if you do this, this is going to be the ramifications. And we see that often through the scripture. Okay. So the last time in Colossians, we gained an understanding of Christ's sufficiency and the foundation that we have in him. And today we're going to see the difference between following rules for righteousness and following Christ. So we left off Colossians 2. Start with verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God. In context, we left off where Paul, and again, we're, this was one cohesive letter, but we're taking it in blocks for time constraints. But where we left off was Paul explaining that we all have the ability to be sufficient in Christ. We are sufficient in Christ. And again, it's something that we have to often realize. So, he says right here, let no one judge you, verse 16, and let no one defraud you, or let no one cheat you, in verse 18. In other words, you're free in Christ. You're free in Christ. Don't let anybody rip you off and place you back into bondage of the beggarly elements of the world, of religion, of the things that brought you to Christ, the old ways. Uh, it's a picture of what Jesus spoke about, the new wineskins versus the old wineskins. You have new wine, a picture of the Holy Spirit, which has to be in new wineskins. We don't go back to the old wineskins. So he's saying, don't let anybody rip you off. Pretty strong words there. 
And he says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you according to festivals, uh, days, feasts, or Sabbaths. Well, under the guise of Christianity, there are some who you wonder if they've read the book of Colossians. If you follow the Seventh-day Adventists, they believe that it's all centered around the Sabbath. You know, you have to they'll even go, go as far as to tell you that if you have a job in emergency services and you work on Saturday, you know, you, you can't be saved. I've had people tell me that. But why are they doing that? Paul says we're not supposed to be so caught up in those things, right? Um, even the, the Amish, if you follow the Amish, they have ways in their group that if you don't follow their ways, you can't be part of that group. And they do bring, it's more, there's a legalism there if you really study their ways. Uh, even the new evangelicalism, the green evangelicals, right? And I like to be green. You know, next year my wife and I are going to, you know, raise bees. Actually, we're going to do it this year. And uh, next year we're going to plant a vegetable garden. And I think we should be green as, as green as possible. But there are some churches that are teaching that, uh, you know, Jesus wouldn't drive an SUV. And if, if, if those in his fellowship have an SUV, they're unspiritual. Now, quite frankly, I don't care what you drive. <laughs> I'm not going to go out to the parking lot and say, SUV, unspiritual, unspiritual. He's got a hybrid. He's really spiritual. <laughs> and Josh is getting a motorcycle, so he's really spiritual. You know? I mean, it's what the bottom line is, don't judge another person's lifestyle unless it's clearly sinful, unless it's clearly double-minded. You know, we're all different. We all come from different cultures, and uh, we shouldn't be judging each other based on lifestyle, Right? And I'll come back to this. We have freedom from needless adherence to the tradition and requirements which were a shadow of Christ, a foreshadow or a precursor. If you see, if I come home from work and and, uh, my wife, and I've heard this illustration being used before, and my wife knows that I'm coming and she sees my shadow, she's excited because she's going to get to greet me. But then when I actually, you know, the shadow is my precursor. Then when I end up in her field of view... Uh, it's even more uh, good for her. And she wouldn't go back to chasing the shadow and trying to hug the shadow. She would say, well, I have my husband here. The shadow was just a precursor to tell her, your husband's on his way. You understand? So we don't go back into those old elements, those, again, precursor shadow. I don't know how else I can uh, explain that. Uh, If we add ordinances and observances as a prerequisite to salvation in addition to Jesus Christ finished work on the cross, then we're nullifying what Jesus did on the cross because his atoning sacrifice was exclusive and superior to any other requirement. So therefore, let no one judge you and bring you back into the old system. And we can see that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is pretty deep theologically, but you can definitely get from reading Hebrews uh, without being a scholar that the, the old system brought us to Christ. And Christ is the perfection. Verse 18, he speaks about, um, let no one defraud you of, of your reward, taking delight in false humility. There's a word that's called asceticism, which is holiness through discipline. Uh, and it, it's out there. Rigorous and rigid religiosity. In Jesus' time, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were very meticulous. They were very rigid. They were very uh, disciplined. And he chastised them because their hearts weren't right with God. Even today, you can see under, under the guise of Christianity, you can see those who cloister themselves, maybe the monks. And again, they take these vows of poverty and chastity and all these vows and they, they discipline themselves. 
But that's, um, you know, I'm going to talk about false humility and, and really what that amounts to. Uh, now, you can see false humility today. Those who you may know who are Christians and say, I'm fasting, you know, and, and they have to tell you every day that they're fasting and they, they gnarl their faces and they make themselves look real spiritual by, oh, it, it's such a, th- I cannot have a bite of your rice cake because I am fasting right now. But Jesus said even to the religious leaders of his day, wash your face, smile, don't tell people you're fasting. That's between you and God, okay? Or today we may hear people just totally um, say, I'm so nothing and, and kind of exaggerate or embellish. You see, here's where you can tell humility from false humility. It's a very simple equation. What you're doing is, our our whole life is to focus on Jesus. When we take the focus off of Jesus and now put the spotlight on me, then it becomes false humility. See, everything is supposed to point us to Christ. If we have ways about us that constantly point everyone to me, because we all are self-centered, including myself, and it's it's a struggle to be more other-centered, and certainly it's, it's something that we should strive to be Christ-centered. But once we take the focus off of Jesus and put it onto me, it becomes humility to pridefulness. That's just a simple equation. Paul spoke about the worship of angels. And we may read this and say, I don't understand this. Remember, there's a cultural aspect to this. Uh, in those days, the false teachers would say that you couldn't go directly to God. You needed intermediaries. And one of your intermediaries were the hierarchy of angels. And this was just their doctrine. So you could pray to angels or go through angels, and then you can finally get to God through the angels. And you can see that today, too, in, in some belief systems where God is unattainable, but that's not what the Scripture says. You have to go through either saints or angels or any of God's intermediary because he's too busy for you. You know, he's got, he doesn't have enough time for you. He's too important. But in the scripture, we know that the Bible says in Hebrews that at any time we can come before the throne of grace. God loves us. We're his children. And and seek that mercy and grace in time of need, the Bible tells us. Verse 19. And not these people don't hold fast to the head. Now, the head is the picture of Jesus. We spoke in uh, sermons past about Jesus being the head of the body, the body of Christ. We all together with other churches, true believers, comprise the body of Christ. And Jesus is our head. The head directs the body what to do, whether uh, autonomously or directly. And, And I'll go into that. So Jesus is the head. And these people aren't holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God. The head. Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Again, we spoke about the focus in times past, the focus theme. Where is our focus? It needs to be on the head. It needs to be on Jesus. Now, in biology, which I have a lot of fun with, the head contains the brain. We all have a head and we all have a brain in it. If you're sitting here, you have those two pieces to your your body. And it controls all the nerves in the body, which controls the, the, the organs, your heart, your lungs. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. Your body does it on its own. It's called the autonomous nervous system or the autonomic nervous system. Now, just in in biology, if an animal has its head severed, the body dies. It's just a matter of time, usually definitely less than a minute, where the animal just starts to die because it can't live without the head. The same way, we can't live spiritually without Jesus Christ as our head. Jesus Christ is the source of all of our spiritual nourishment. So... I want to say this to you. If you're in Christ, if your focus is on Christ and you believe in Jesus and your desire is to get him to know him more, you are free in Christ. 
But I think sometimes we don't actually realize that. And sometimes with our actions, we don't realize it. Do you realize you are free in Christ? That should, that should be a great feeling. Actually, I used to ride a motorcycle. And um, just, there was something about riding a motorcycle where it was just a feeling of being free. It's just like a physical kind of rush, <laughs> shaking your head, right? It's cool riding a motorcycle. But it's even cooler to know that when you're in Christ, you're free. I could just walk out of here. Right now, I just go, ah, throw my hands up and go, I'm free. But a lot of us don't realize that. You're free from those manipulating you. You're free from somebody telling you that you have to go back into the old wineskins. You are free. And you need to realize that. In John 15, Jesus says this. It's only one thing that we have to do. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. Relationship. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's our task. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the head. We get all our spiritual nourishment from him, and from there, as a fallout, we're free in Christ. Verse 20. Therefore, Paul says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's saying, if you died with Christ, kind of goes to the, with the baptism example. When we get baptized, it's a symbolic of dying with Christ and being resurrected, being raised in newness of life. There's a lot of symbolism as Christians when we go to get baptized. If you died with Christ, if you died to the world and its principles, why do you go back to bondage? You go from freedom to the unfreedom. You keep going back. To that, that setup, right? And verse 23 really sums it up. It looks good to the unspiritual and to the world, but it has no value in spirituality. All these things, um, self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, it looks good to the world, right? When somebody is disciplined, but it, it has no really lasting effect. I mean, the, the Dalai Lama, right? The Dalai Lama has come and, and you know, does his tour in, in Western society, and he's got a winning smile. He's got a sagacious, sagacious look. He's got a really cool robe that he wears. But all that discipline, all that, it, it really means nothing. If you really follow what the Tibetan monks believe, and again, you can look this up very easily. It's rooted in shamanism, reincarnation, and polytheism. So don't look at the appearances. Look to see what's behind the appearance. That's why on our website... And everything that we do, we tell people, this is what we believe. We're not ashamed. There's no secrets here. We tell people openly, this is what we believe. And you can choose to, to agree with it and follow it or not. Under the guise of spiritual wisdom and self-imposed religion and restraints to the point of absurdity. Again, it's so cool that we saw that 2,000 years ago there was a religious system that was a model for things to come. And even today, the Pharisees. They went around, they were so meticulous in what they did that even their garden plants, their, their mints, their cumin, all the different little garden varieties of plants, their spices, they were so meticulous in their religiosity that they would take a tenth 
of what they got. You know, so you got so many seeds. If you got a hundred seeds, they would take ten of those little seeds and tithe them to God. And tithing is good. Giving back to God, supporting the work of the ministry is a good thing. And they were so meticulous. But Jesus said, you, you have, you're so meticulous, but the, the harlots, the tax collectors, all those people that you look down on, they're all getting into heaven ahead of you. And you're not even going to get in there. So their absurdity and their self-imposed religion and restraints did nothing for them. Even in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses were justified in the Old Testament by faith, not by works. The Bible tells us that Abraham was accounted righteousness. God looked at Abraham as righteous because he believed in, in what God was doing. He believed in the promises of God. He believed that one day he would have a great nation. So Abraham was considered righteous by God because of his belief in God's ability. And we see that in Hebrews 11 too. Verse 23. Again, these things, um, self-imposed religion, they're no value against the indulgences of the flesh. And I want to try to hit this from all angles. And here's kind of the last point on that. Human or earthly means to attain spirituality does the following. Does the following. I've been in law enforcement for 18 years. It's a quasi-military organization. You know, I, I know how to keep my uniform. I know how to be disciplined under a hierarchy. Those of you who have been in the military know what I'm talking about or law enforcement. So I know how to discipline myself. Before I had some different injuries, I used to be, you know, pretty disciplined with my body, too, with working out. I was a lot bigger. I was very disciplined. I can, that's no problem. I can do that. But you, it's a problem when you take that and you bring it into the spiritual world. It doesn't work, okay? First of all, what it does is it fosters competition among believers. I'm fasting for 30 days. I bet you can't do that. I'm tithing 15%. I bet you can't do that. And what happens is now what you do is you have a competition between me and you. And I'm more spiritual than you because I can do these earthly things. What that leads to is a sense of competition among believers, which that's not what spirituality is about. It leads to self-righteousness. You can hear it in my attitude. I'm better than you, right? It leads to a critical spirit and an elitism instead of personal devotion to God. Now, if you don't do what I do, I'm looking down on you. You don't serve, I'm looking down on you. You don't tithe, I'm looking down on you. You see? That's a problem. That's what that leads to. It's, it's, this isn't the Olympics. It's devotion to God, right? Only steadfastness towards Christ will prevail in those areas. And I can see that even as a pastor. I can get into the habit of, of disciplining myself and saying, I shouldn't do that. I need to put that away. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. And on the surface, you could look at me and say, he's a pretty spiritual guy. But my, my heart's not right. It's, now, if I take it from the other angle, instead of forcing myself to do things, and I read more, and I'm in prayer more, and I'm just seeking the Lord, and I'm, I'm totally, my heart is devoted to him, and I'm seeking his will, all those things will come by themselves, and it won't be forced. It'll be out of a, out of a heartfelt, um, you get what I'm saying? Okay, heartfelt versus being forced to do these things, there's a difference. And that's why sometimes we falter, because we try to make ourselves do that, instead of really seeking the Lord. And, and the last verse today is really going to uh, bring that home. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If you died with Christ and you're raised again, spiritually, being born again, that's what that whole thing means, being born of the Spirit, right? Right? Then set, 
Here's the position of the believer. Set your minds on heavenly things. The false teachers focused on the body. Just over-focus on the body. But Paul focuses on communion with God. Remember, thoughts influence action and behavior. Your thoughts and what your mind is preoccupied with will influence your actions and behavior. It has no choice, right? Philippians 4.8, what does Paul say in Philippians 4.8? He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Set your mind on heavenly things. And he says, if you died, okay, you, you died with Christ you, and your life is hidden with him. I'm going to try to make some sense out of this. Um, the Gnostics, okay, the false teachers, everything was a mystery to them. You see Paul use their own words against them, right? Paul uses the word mystery a lot because the Gnostics back then used that word a lot. Mystery, esoteric, secret, right? Come with us, the elite group. Don't tell the other believers in the church because we're going to make you more spiritual. There's hidden knowledge. And Paul kind of used those terms too. But he said that if there's anything hidden, it's not that Mike and, and Mike are more spiritual than everybody else. Okay, that's not what he was saying. But he's saying everybody here has the ability to, to have the things of God. And you're hidden with Christ. Christ's glory, Christ died, Christ rose again, and Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father until he comes again to judge the living and the dead, to come for the, his church and bring them home with him. We know that um, the Son of Man will come back again and everyone will see his glory. No one's going to miss it this time, right? So what happens is when, when the Son of Man comes back, when Christ comes back, everyone will see him in his glory and will also be glorified too to the glory of the Father. We'll be changed also. So in a sense, our, our, everything, our, our full potential is hidden right now, but it will be realized when, when Christ comes again. Verse 4. He says, then Christ, who is our life, will then appear. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Now, this is, again, a reference to the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4 speaks about this. When Jesus Christ comes again, could be today, could be tomorrow, could be three years from now, could be ten years from now. I don't know. We're not supposed to set dates in the scripture. But Jesus Christ will come again. He will come in glory, will be raised in glory. And First Thessalonians 4 covers that. So what we have in this section is the position of the believer, whom Jesus is our life. And that's the question. Is Jesus our life? Is everything we do revolved around who Jesus is? That's, that's a good question that we should ask ourselves. And do we want to do things that are pleasing to him? And do we behave as we have that relationship with Jesus, that we want to do the things that please him? I have an example that I believe the Lord gave me. I used it once or twice before. If, and it's a relationship issue. Um, so just take it as a relationship issue, but my, me and my wife, Heather, right? And I, I, Heather says to me, you know, the garbage needs to be taken out. Your son needs to be disciplined. The house is in disrepair. And I say, I've, I have the answer for you, babe. And I go to the store, I come back, I buy her flowers. And she's like, okay, but the garbage is now more overflowing. <laughs> it's on the floor. And Josiah is tearing the house up and, you know, things need to be fixed around here. Baby, I have the answer for you. I go back to the store. I buy her more flowers. She's scratching her head saying, this is what I need, Joe. Are you listening to me? And I buy her more flowers. And then she's mad at me. 
And I'm like, Lord, I don't get it. The house is filled with flowers. What more could this woman want from me? You see? But the point is, I'm doing what I think she wants. And that's a lot what we do in religion. Well, I'm going to tell God what, what I'm going to do to make him happy. Do we ever seek to ask God what he wants? It's found right here in his word. Religion, every religion in the world tries to reach God by human means. But Jesus and, and God in his word told us what they want from us, right? It's just like that example I taught you about or told you about. Verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. Therefore, put to death the carnal desires. Put to death the works of the flesh that will manifest if you're not in the spirit. It's like pruning. Again, my wife is really, she's got a beautiful garden. And as much as she's watering the, the, the bushes and the plants, she's out there with pruning shears, trimming off the dead parts, trimming off the, the bad parts that are sucking the life out of the, out of the bush uh, because it's, it's, it's pathological, it's dysfunctional. She's trimming it, trimming it. And what happens is more comes up from pruning, right? And we saw that in John 15 that we just read. Uh, and that, that helps the general health of the, of the item or the plant or whatever that she's trying to cultivate. So let's just take these uh, apart a, a little bit. Fornication, the Greek word is pornion. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, in our English? Sexual sin, including voyeurism of it. Pornion is where we get the word pornography from in the English. Uncleanness, not necessarily an act, but a perversion of attitude. A crudeness towards such things. And the best thing I could think about, it's kind of popped into my mind, is the water cooler jokes. No matter where you live, no matter where you work, it's everyone's some people are on their break. They take their coffee mugs. They fill up their little plastic things with the water cooler uh, stuff there. And they talk around and maybe because it's not in the company of others, they can say, hey, did you hear the one about the just crude, crass, you know, uh, vulgar, maybe the guys with the guys. Women aren't immune from it. The women with the women. And it's just like a, a crassness. Right. And doing the best I can to kind of take this apart. Passion and evil desire, passion would be better translated lust uh, because, you know, in the English, our English language kind of evolves over time in a sense. Uh, passion could be for a good thing. You could actually have a passion for your spouse, a, a sexual passion, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, God gave us these passions to be contained and to be used and channeled properly. He doesn't want us to be miserable, but it's that, that lust for something that is not healthy. It's for something that's outside of God's covenant. Uh, and the Greek word for passion or lust is pathos, where we get the word pathological from. So it's, it's a negative understood as. Um, Hebrews, and you know, because somebody had asked me this question again, for a spouse for a spouse, Hebrews 13 says the marriage bed is undefiled. Okay, so enough with that. Let's move on. Uh, covetousness, all right? It means not satisfied, always desiring more maybe desiring what others have. And Paul links covetousness with idolatry. That's a big one. Now, covetousness could be anything. You could covet somebody's stuff. And you, you heard the expression, uh, keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses have a pool. I've got to get a pool. The Joneses have a new SUV. I've got to get a new SUV. The jo- I mean, you could, you could find yourself in bankruptcy and, and, and foreclosure doing that, right? But it's, it's that covetousness for what other people have could be a person 
You know, oh, that person's spouse listens to them. You know, if I only could be married to that person. You know, you've heard things like that. Um, Covetousness for a position, a promotion, right? Those of you who are in your job. It could be a, a position that somebody has that maybe somebody got ahead of you and they were qualified and you're begrudging that person and you, you actually find yourself not liking them in your heart because that was something that you wanted. So covetous, man, that can cover a lot of stuff. And what God is saying is, through Paul, is it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Because what you're doing is, in a sense, you're putting God aside and all you can see is that covetousness, that, that goal that you have that's a, an improper goal, uh, and and it, it's just totally taking over your life. It, it consumes you, right? Covetousness can be in ministry. We saw that uh, in Wednesday night, uh, Judges chapter 9 with Abimelech. He was a false shepherd. All he desired was leadership. He had such a thirst and a lust for leadership that he brutalized the people that he was leading. He was a terrible leader. Even pastors can get caught up in this. Pastor Bob says to Pastor Jeff, how many do you have in your fellowship? Oh, I have a thousand. And he responds, how many do you have in your fellowship? I have a thousand and ten. <laughs> it's like, you know, you've got to put that extra number on there to, to show that whatever. So this, this, this thing can, can consume us and it can go into all facets of life. And I don't think we realize in America that we covet. We covet. We're not happy with what God has given us. Think about that. You know, you have a, a kid who's a C student. And you look at your neighbor and your neighbor has an A student. You know, why can't my kid be an A student? Well, maybe, you're, maybe God is using that C student child to do something in your heart, right? Love your, love your kids for what they are. You know, and, and my wife and I teach my son, it's not about all about getting A's. Do the best you can, Josiah, and mommy and daddy will be proud of you. He does the best he can. Whatever he comes, I don't, I don't get mad at him. I just want to make sure he's not goofing off. But other than that, I'm, I'm happy with what God has given me. What do we covetous for? And the question is, and I want to stop here, look at our own hearts. Are we happy with what God has given us? Are you happy with your spouse? Are you happy with your kids? Are you happy where you are in life and your achievements in life? Do you feel that life gave you a raw deal and I could have been something else? I could have been a supervisor. I'm going to retire as a patrolman. But you know what? My, my career as a police officer has been very rewarding. You know, it's, it's, I've saved people's lives. Um, it's just been exciting. I don't have to be a lieutenant or a captain. I'm very happy retiring as a patrolman. My, now my interests are, are with this church. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not even taking the, the sergeant's test, which is coming up in October, and a lot of my peers and guys who are junior to me are taking that test. I choose not to take it. And it's a good witnessing opportunity because I'm asked why. You make a good supervisor. Well, because, because I don't want to rip off the town, and I don't want to rip off my fellowship. If I become a supervisor, you're going to need more of me. And right now I can't spread myself any thinner than I already am. So it's, it's a great witnessing opportunity. I'm happy with, the Lord, with what the Lord has given me, and my interests are in this fellowship. Um, verse 6, he says this, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now, the wrath of God, it's coming. It's coming. Um, I can't imagine, I, I look at the news and I get discouraged. I see murders and divorces and I see, you know, it's just, and I, I'm not judging people, it's just sad, you know, the, the, the famines and the things that are going on in the world. World leaders are, can watch their people starve and, and they're taken care of very well. It, it's discouraging to look at the news, isn't it? It's just all bad news. 
But the wrath of God is going to come on the sons of disobedience. I was reading a law enforcement brief uh, from the um, Homeland Security, and on the southwest border of our country, uh, there's just a lot going on on that border. Human trafficking, I mean, people shoved into the back of trailers, and they, they get to the border, and they let them out, and half of them are dead from, from heat and stuff. And, you know, what they do, what humans do to each other on this planet is disgusting. We're such evil little creatures. And that's why we need salvation. And let me tell you something. As Christians, we, we shouldn't look down at anybody else because we deserve judgment too. But thank God for Jesus. He took that judgment upon himself. He paid our debts. Okay. Um, so the wrath of God is going to come on the sons of disobedience, but God will never judge the righteous with the wicked. And that's why we believe in a pre-trib rapture. We believe that Jesus will come before the, the judgments in Revelation come and God actually pours out his displeasure upon the earth. A few scriptures, Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, the the hour of trial will come upon the whole world, but you, you believers, will be spared from that hour of trial. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, you, believers, are not appointed to wrath, okay? But the wrath of of God will come on the earth, but believers will be removed before that. If we look at types in the flood, in Egypt, in Sodom and Gomorrah, God always removed the righteous before he laid out his judgments on, the, on a wicked world. And he's going to do that again. And you may say, well, what about two things? What about the suffering now? The suffering now is not authored by God. Number one, human, humans have given Satan the keys to this world. He is, make no mistake, Second Corinthians tells us, he is the God of this world. And um, a lot of man's free choice, men and women, their, their decisions are why there's so much suffering in the world. And actually, all of their decisions. It's not God's fault. But there will a point, come a point in time where God will remove the righteous. He'll move those who are in Christ. And he will judge, in the book of Revelation, the, the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments upon a wicked and rebellious world. But right now, the, the, the suffering doesn't come from the hands of God. It comes from men's evil decision and the God of this world, Satan, who tries to cause people to a fight against each other, who tries to break down the family, who tries to break down communities. So understand the difference between those uh, two points. In verse 7, he says, wrath is going to come to these people in which you also once walked when you lived in them. Now, this is important because in strict context, in strict context, Paul is saying to the Colossians, you guys used to do a lot of these things that those wicked people are doing. Uh, but now you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you, you don't do them as much, we hope. Uh, but this is a, a good scripture for us, too, because I, I can't stand up here and say I'm righteous. And, and my whole life I've been a righteous guy. I mean, some of you may, may like me, but I, I can't do that. I'd be lying to you. Um, I lived a, a life before I knew the Lord that was not pleasing to him. And I don't need to go into details, but I did. And a lot of us here, unless you grew up as a Christian and maybe you lived a a clean life all throughout your life, and that might be true, but you still sinned, a lot of us can say, yeah, that used to be me. So Paul is saying to the Colossians, you know, don't look down on these people because you used to do this. It was like a little reminder, wake-up call. And I think this is a good scripture for Christians not to get self-righteous. And the media portrays it. They always take the cults and the wrong churches and they put them on the news and these people are you know uh, the signs god hates fags or i mean i when i see that i cringe i'm like that is not us that does not represent us 
It shouldn't represent us. We should never look down on anybody else. Even in the church, we get into this thing where we start looking at other people and, and you say, well, you know, I'm leading a good, clean life. What about you? It's that self-righteousness. Paul says don't do it. And we shouldn't do it as Christians either. We should never look down on others. That really bothers me. Verse 8. He says, but now you must also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, put off the following, anger. Anger is a continual attitude of brewing hatred and unforgiveness. And you know, when you hold a grudge, a grudge just hurts you. You know, you, you get that anxiety feeling, you get that knot in your stomach, you just have this anger towards another person, and that person's not being hurt by it. You know, you don't have any, you know, karma effects on them or something that comes out of you and, and blasts them. You, you, you just hurt yourself. So anger is not good spiritually, and it's certainly not good for you as a person. Wrath. Wrath is more of the action and explosiveness of anger. And some may say, well, didn't we just read the wrath of God? Well, let me parse that for you. If we were in charge of the universe, any one of us in our present state, we would, and, and, we, and we had wrath or we, we judged the world, what would we do? We'd judge the people first who hurt us, wouldn't we? Because we're self-centered, because we're sinners. The wrath of God is not because of he's, he's offended. The wrath of God is because evil offends him. And he can't tolerate evil. So the wrath of God is, is, or the judgment of God is equal, it's fair, it's perfect, but it's to judge evil and wickedness, which is something that he did not intend originally. We have biases, God does not. That's why it says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, because that's up to him to take vengeance, not for us. Malice, a continual spreading of evil, like a way of life. Malice, I could say, is the opposite of benevolence or philanthropy. Okay, malice is a constant spreading of evil as a way of life. And slander, the destroying of someone's good reputation. Now, there's a fine line between this and confronting evil. If somebody is uh, in the public eye, you know, famous people, they have talk shows, whatever it is, uh, you know, they record those shows and millions of people see them. And a person may denigrate Christianity or turn their back on their Christian faith. And I may say from the pulpit, I often, I often read quotes, and this person said this. That's not slander. If the person themselves is, is denigrating Christ or making fun of Christ or Christians, and I repeat that, it's from their own words. That's not slander. Slander is, is destroying someone's good reputation. Hopefully, the words that we say, we live and die by our words. Uh, if I said something improper and you held me to my words exactly, as long as you didn't twist it, I would be convicted if I did something wrong. So slander. And filthy language. Filthy language. Probably if I saw one of you out and uh, I was at a restaurant and you came up to me, you know, I'm, I'm out of the pulpit, and I opened up the conversation and I started using a bad word as an adjective, you, you'd probably like be taken aback. You're a pastor. Well, what would you do that for? So filthy language is not fitting for us as Christians to, um, to, to be as, as a way of life. Now, a caveat to all this is, number one, when I was reading this scripture, uh, if some of you feel convicted, I was convicted too. Uh, when I read the scripture, I get, I'm not immune from conviction. If the Holy Spirit is speaking through God's word, he'll speak to me as much as he speaks to you. If we 
do a checklist and we look at all these ten or so things that are here and a lot of them are works of the flesh and we say, gee, I did that this week, I did that this week. Understand that your pastor is also convicted, okay? Um, But understand this too, that the disciple John says this. He says that there's a, a practice, okay? Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Practice versus a struggle. As Christians, we still see, we have a new nature now, but we also had an old nature because we're still tied to this flesh. So part of us wants to sin, and part of us wants to walk in the Spirit. And that's our struggle, this side of eternity. So if you're struggling and you, um, you know, I just want to make sure I, I clear this up. You know, I don't want anybody to leave here feeling depressed because, oh, I, you know, how, what am I going to do? I didn't get a 10 out of 10, right? Understand that we struggle as Christians to do the right thing. We continually to seek the cross. We continually focus on Jesus. And, you know, we try to move closer and closer to that, that perfect standard, which we'll never attain on this side. And then at times we'll step back here and there. But then we move forward again, right? And we're always moving towards that goal. But we do make mistakes. We do mess up. Okay? And we do struggle at times. However, in our old life, we probably looked forward to sinning. It was enjoying. You, you planned your week and how you were going to sin, right? So th- there's a difference here. In verse 9, lying. Proverbs says that a lying tongue hates those that are destroyed by it. Lying usually breaks trust. Because when you lie to each other, it kind of is, a, is a, 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 a busting up of that relationship. Those, that relationship takes hits. It takes torpedoes when we lie to each other. Paul says don't lie to each other. It's wrong. Um, Maybe somebody who's always playing fast and loose with the truth. They're always on that line. They're always trying to manipulate or, 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 you know, it's not a good thing for us as Christians. Double talk. And then he speaks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Again, the old man, meaning not necessarily old man in age, but the old former life before Christ. The former carnal, sinful, fleshly behavior that we lived and loved and looked forward to versus now, to desire to put that away and put on the new man who is holy and pleasing to God. And understand, it's not a flawlessness. We never become flawless on this side of eternity. But it's a process. That's a good way to describe it. It's an ongoing process of being renewed and being made more holy. Now, how do I work through the apparent contradiction here, going back to the beginning? The false teachers peddle discipline. And now you're telling me it's not good to be disciplined, um, you know, they, but you should do this. What gives, Joe? What's going on here? Forced discipline is a problem, okay? The answer is holiness and righteousness to please God can't be forced or worked through. It must be a heartfelt devotion. And this last line really sums it up in verse 10. It says, and having put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And that's where it all is. Verse 11 just says that everybody, Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, men, women, uh, you know, Jesus has a transcendent tent. Under his tent, anybody can come to to the Lord. But verse 10 is important. He says, you put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. How is that accomplished, verse 10? In other words, immersion in our Lord, and how do we do that? And the answer is not having a Sunday Christian attitude. Now, let me say what I'm not saying, and then let me say what I'm saying. Let me say what I'm not saying first. This has nothing to do with attendance. This has to do with attitude. We don't take attendance here. Not, not attendance, but attitude, okay? In our hearts, if our desire is just to 
give God his 40 minutes out of a 168 week from Sunday to Saturday, that's an attitude of a Sunday Christian attitude. But where is our heart? To be renewed in the knowledge according to him. Now, give me, let me give you an example. Our governor, Governor Corzine, if somebody said to you or said to me, do you know him? I'd be like, yeah, I know Governor Corzine. No, no, no. Do you really know him? No, I don't really know him. I don't know what his favorite color is. I don't know if he has any pets. I don't know how old he is. I really don't know what he thinks in his spare time. So I know him, but I don't know him. Now, that's the thing with Jesus. Some people, oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I've heard of him. I've read about him. I read, you know, a gospel once 10 years ago. But do you really know him? Do you know what Jesus wants from you? Do you know what Jesus has, Jesus' major teachings? Some people say, well, I know Jesus, but they, if, if you, if you kind of spelled out some of his teachings, they would be like, oh, Jesus said that? Maybe I don't really know him. So what the Bible is saying is the more we get to know him, the more we have a desire to know him, the more we will put on the new man. And there's your answer. Not to be forced, not for somebody else to force you, not for you to beat yourself up and say, oh, I'm so low, I, can't, I just can't get over this. It's to, to, to have an understanding of Jesus and to move towards that goal of understanding him. Okay, to have that familiarity, to say, yeah, I know Jesus. I know what he taught. I can't remember everything he said in the scripture, but I can tell you when I do this, this is right. When I do this, this is wrong. I know that if, if you ask me, if, does Jesus have this for my life? I would probably say yes based on his teachings. And would he, would, would he have you do that in your life? And I'd say no based on his teaching. So you know him. So I would just say that the last line is what says it all. Our goal is to be renewed in the knowledge of Jesus by getting to know him more and more and to have that close, familiar relationship with him. Let's pray.